Welcome to the third episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast. This week, we'll be turning our attention to Syria. During the past nine years of conflict, the world has been a spectator to the mass human rights violations being committed with appalling frequency, from allegations of chemical attacks, the use of barrel bombs, to the use of indiscriminate targeting of civilians. Schools and hospitals have been targeted, and tens of thousands have been imprisoned, tortured and murdered in secret prisons. During that time, more than half a million Syrians have been killed in the conflict, over a million have been severely injured, and over 12 million people have been displaced, either internally or externally, in other countries. It's important to emphasise that more than half the pre-war population have either been killed, disappeared, or have been forced to leave their homes. A significant proportion of those that were forced to flee, forced due to circumstances outside of their control, have not been able to return for the very same reasons that forced them to leave. Extremist groups have devastated parts of Syria, and the so-called Islamic State, or Daesh, have committed countless barbaric crimes in large areas of Syria and Iraq. Forced between a brutal regime and a barbaric collection of extremists, Syrians have been abandoned by the world with no justice, no accountability, and no end to entrenched impunity. It is a fear felt across the globe that the Syrian conflict that started as a peaceful revolution, striving for democratic freedom and dignity, has descended into the worst humanitarian crisis in modern history, with no end in sight. Guernica has made Syrian accountability work a priority since the start of the revolution in 2011. In fact, it was that Syrian accountability work that prompted a discussion on the establishment of Guernica almost eight years ago. It was through working on different parts of the same conflict that I met Almadena Bernabo, and we decided to come together and create this new platform. The name Guernica 37 was chosen due to the significant events in the town of Guernica in 1937. Guernica, the most ancient town of the Basques and the centre of the cultural tradition, was completely destroyed on the 26th of April 1937, and more than 1,600 civilians, mostly women and children, were killed. Aleppo is one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world and appears throughout history as a cultural centre for more than 2,000 years. The siege of Aleppo is one of the longest in history, with more than 31,000 civilians killed over a four-year period. Besieged Aleppo became the new Guernica. In 2016, the former International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell, a Conservative MP, stated that Russia had shredded international law by providing military support for the Syrian regime's bombing campaign. He claimed that Russia's conduct and their disregard for diplomatic relations resembled the behaviour of the fascist regimes of Germany, Spain and Italy during the 1930s. In response to Russia's use of the veto in the UN Security Council, he stated, We are witnessing events which match the behaviour of the Nazi regime in Guernica in Spain. In 2016, Jonathan Jones wrote in The Guardian that, in 1937, the courage of Picasso's painting was to tell the truth in an age of lies. That is still what it does. The most awful analogy between today and the 1930s is that truth is being crushed by lies and propaganda. We are in a post-truth age. We are fortunate today to be speaking to Wad al-Khatib, 
extraordinary young Syrian woman who filmed a documentary for Summer with Channel 4, and her husband Hamza, a surgeon from the last remaining hospital in besieged Aleppo. My name is Wad Al-Khatib. I'm a Syrian filmmaker. Um, I started being a journalist in 2011 when the Syrian revolution started. And at that time, I didn't know Hamza yet. I was a student at Aleppo University uh, studying marketing. And when uh, the Syrian revolution started, I joined the protests. And that's when I met Hamza for the first time. Um, We've never at that time knew what the future will hold for us. I was just like trying to document and film everything I can at the university, trying to stand against what the regime was saying about us as protesters. We were just looking for better life for us, for dignity, freedom, state of law. And that's what actually put us in touch between me and Hamza. My name is Zahed Qatorji, and I'm known by, by Hamza Al-Khatib. I'm a Syrian doctor and also an activist. I started my activism in, the, uh, in 2011 by joining the protests in the University of Aleppo. And then just when part of Aleppo was announced a non-government control area, I decided to move there and uh, start a hospital which happens to be the last remaining hospital in east part of Aleppo after being shared several times by the Syrian regime and the, the Russians. And during the university protests, I met Wad. And after that, when Wad also moved to east part of Aleppo, we stayed together and she was staying at the same hospital that I started. And then we, we got married and, you know, one thing led to another. What was it that the revolution was aiming for at that time? What did you see the revolution standing for? The name we, we all call it, it's like the dignity revolution, because as Syrian people, the civilians, we have no rights. We even have no dignity because everything is ruled by the dictatorship regime of Bashar al-Assad and his like close family and then the, the wider uh, circle would be the the army, as like some or many of the the Arab world in 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 the area. So when when it all started, it was peaceful demonstrations. It's only calling that the Syrian people are one, and we are all equals. And it was like simply the revolution for dignity. When you started documenting what was happening. Was that with the thought of making a film? Did you did you think that that's what it would eventually become? I was just trying to document as much as I can of the situation, hoping that we can make kind of an urgent action. Uh, I thought, you know, working at the news and making reports, telling people what was happening, all the crimes, that could change something on, on the ground. But at the same time, something was coming to my mind always that I will not survive. Uh, I could be killed at any second and I should just like save all this moment, which was very important to me. But I was sure at that time that it would be also important for the people outside to know that in Syria, there's not just war, there is life. There is people who are dreaming of just normal life as any people all over the world. 
And then when I was um, like out and after the, the displacement of Aleppo, I like gather all the material that I have, which it was like 12 hard drives over 500 hours. And I start to think about what, what can I do in this? And actually at the beginning, when I start working on For Summer, there was like no plan at all of like making this 10 minutes or 15 minutes or one hour. And with the time working with Edward Watts, my co-director, and like going through this experience again in a different way as a director now, then for some I like came to life. You wanted the film to be about the city. Um, you didn't want to be the focus or the center of the story, but you wanted to show people what was happening in the city. Describe for us what was happening. We were trying just to have a say in our country. Uh, to change our life for better, we wanted to have like uh, a fair and um, like good government, let's say. And we wanted just to not live in corruption, not live in injustice and feel like free to talk against something if we felt that it's wrong. And for that, we joined the protests and for that, the revolution, Syrian revolution started. Um, with the daily life after like a couple of years uh, out of the regime control, we start like to see how the shelling and the bombing was attacking every area in Aleppo, um, like around me. And when I get married with Hamza and I was watching him working in the hospital and, um, like sometimes he was, for example, like stay awake for 24 hours or 48 hours just like to keep going in the working in the hospital whereas there's like very huge lack of doctors it was the first time for us to feel that we had something in common we all believe in the good of our destiny and we wanted to do something to make that real and that happened and you were you were working at this time in a hospital what was your average day like the first thing that I thought it was going to be like only a couple of months, then the regime would fall. Then I can carry on my medical training because in, I've just like graduated by the end of 2011. And then by like the end of 2012, I was the manager of a hospital in the most dangerous city in the world, which I truly didn't expect it. And how we, all the doctors that were in Aleppo managed to do it. I think in mid of 2013, the total population in east part of Aleppo was 1.5 million. And like during the siege, there was 300,000 people. So we feel like, you know, like we were, we were presenting the, the health system in, 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 in the area. And the most terrifying thing was that we know that the hospitals are the uh, most targeted places for the Russian and the, the Syrian army. But in the same time, like there is, no other option but to function in a hospital. You need like 24-7 electricity. You need sometimes like big devices like the CT scan. So you can't just randomly operate in, 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 in basements. And that was like tough decision to make basically regarding where to put the hospital because you, you want it to be very accessible to the people and you want to be very obvious and known to the people. But at the same time, you want it to be very like secure and protected from those aircrafts. 
24-7, we know that we might be targeted at any moment. And the daily life was like very ups and downs, you know, like sometimes it could be like a couple of days with nothing at all. And then suddenly the next day will be like, you know, several massacres at the city, receiving more than a hundred casualty in a half a day. And that's why like you also need to be prepared. The feeling of being on call all the time, any moment, that was also very tough, you know, to be always prepared for a massacre or for being attacked. That was one of the most tension time I think I've ever lived. But it all go away in a minute, you know, when you manage like to save a little boy or girl or thankful word from a mother that we managed to rescue her children. That will ease all the stress that, that we, we felt in the previous days. How many of you were working in the hospital during this time? In October 2012, we were 31 doctors. The number has ranged maybe like increased to 50. And then like in the last days of Aleppo, 10 doctors were operating in the area. The thing is like through all the years, you know, because of the ups and downs, for example, when like the golden day of, of East Aleppo in mid of 2013, when there was like 1.5 million civilians living there, there was a lot of doctors and a lot of like healthcare professions. There were several teachers, there were several engineers and several small factory has opened at the area. But then the regime launched his one of his massive attacks when he started like the, the barrel bombs on, on the area. And about like 500,000 people fled the city. And with that, also the number of doctors and other uh, professions has reduced. And you said uh, 500,000 people left at that time. Why did you stay? The main reason, I think the feeling of, of responsibility we felt toward the, the city and the civilians and toward the revolution and everyone who participated in it, when we started protests and we started joining the, the protest, we, we believed in our right and the Syrian people's rights to, to live in dignity. And we just like felt that it's, it's not right to leave the city when things are bad. In the toughest time, we should be there. We were always laughing about, like, we think that we're going to leave the country as soon as the lesson has fallen. So we're like, when everyone is going to come back, it's our time to leave. So at some point during all of this, uh, you became pregnant. How frightening was that when you learned? I really don't know how to explain this, but it was like as any woman all over the world. And really, you can see that through uh, the film, how we were very happy. Like we almost forgot where we've been and what we are going through. And the only thing was coming to our mind that we have a new life coming to our new small family. and. That's mean a lot for us. Just tell us why you chose the name uh, Sama. So Sama means sky. And there was something we wanted to change in our mind, thinking about the life. Unfortunately, everything started to be uh, different for us. The sea brings death. The sky also brings death. And everything, like we, we, we weren't able to see the good things in this life. And we wanted just to keep the sky as we knew before. It's more about the future. It's more about 
the good things. We wanted to keep the sky clear and without bombing. And we wanted like to name our first daughter Sky to keep this in our mind all the time. For a lot of people that they won't necessarily understand at what time in the conflict this actually occurred and what it was like to actually bring up a young girl in that conflict. Talk to us a little bit about the progression of the conflict and the the attacks in Aleppo at the time when you were starting to bring uh, Sama into the world? So when we got married, it was the end of 2014. And at that time, there was nothing really coming to our mind that this will be more uh, worse. We were just thinking that we are in a good place where we are almost like we'll be free and liberated out of the regime control. And when I was, I found out that I was pregnant, the situation in Aleppo like wasn't very, very good, but it was like kind of, I mean, we used to that. I I don't want to say normal because it wasn't normal, but I mean, we were able to cope with it. But then when uh, in the middle of my pregnancy, the Russian air forces interfere in Syria. And at that time, it started to be like, this is a different kind of, like, different stage of what's happening. And when Sama was born, it was actually the last day of 2015. And I didn't know what would happen next, but the only thing came to my mind that I'm bringing life to a place where everything around is death. I need to keep believing in, in in the life and in the importance of uh, finding the hope every day. And when someone was born, we, we saw this, like all that feeling being translated when we saw her face and we saw when she was like laughing. And that's also one clip in the film, which until now, every time I'm watching that, when someone was like laughing while she was sleeping, like I still can feel that strength and hope even with with the death around us all the time we can see as well that the situation in syria it started as a peaceful resistance and it soon blossomed into a powerful movement that was then crushed by a dictatorship does it frighten you when you see this happening in different parts of the world now that this kind of thing can happen so easily Uh, Just a couple of months ago, we were traveling in so many cities in America and in the UK and in France. And we were telling people after the film that the life here and all this democracy, it's very fragile. And we need and you need to notice and be careful about everything's happening because you don't know when the same situation could happen. The governments all over the world should understand that the people has the right to to protest if they feel or think like that. It's a simple right. The, the feeling of injustice and feeling like you don't have voice or you don't have like freedom or dignity, that will for sure produce violence. We know exactly how our revolution has turned from peaceful to armed. Uh, remember, in like so many cities, the protests were giving roses, red roses and red flowers to security forces to just tell them you're not the enemy. 
we're not targeting you. Even though like it, we were met with uh, like a huge amount of violence and being called by Bashar al-Assad as terrorists, we've been called germs, that we are the germs in the, in the society. And then people being like attacked, arrested, and that what turned it to an armed revolution. But it's like the, the government role to uh, understand the people and understand their needs and, and meet there. So I think like any fault that might happen in the United States or that happened in all the other of the Arab country world, it was because of the government, not because of the people. No one wants to destroy his country. But the little dictatorship in, in, in those presidents, that's what would destroy the countries. One of the things that has played a massive role in the evolution of the Syrian conflict since the Russian involvement has been misinformation and propaganda. How would you say that you've experienced that? How difficult is it to, to counter that kind of narrative? Uh, I just want to refer to what Hamza mentioned in one of the points about like the lack of justice. Uh, that's what makes people like, you know, being driven to this propaganda and falling in so many troubles because of this. The regime from the beginning of the revolution, they were trying to say that there was nothing happening in Syria. They were ignoring and denying everything. And at one point when he wasn't able to deny anything more, they start to turn it like these protesters are shooting the army or they are like doing uh, violence in the protests. And when the Russian interfere, actually before they interfere physically in Syria, they were helping the regime in that propaganda. At some point, you decided to turn all of this powerful footage into a film. What was the point that made you come to that decision? Right after we left Aleppo, the main thing that made me take this decision to do for Sama was to stand against the propaganda. Because when, when we went out, we've been told from so many people about is that true that there's so many tourists in the city and the involvement of the Russian propaganda and everything, politicians, decision makers, uh, even like normal people as public. I wanted to do the film to show the people exactly what was uh, the experience inside Aleppo. And I didn't know at that moment how the film would be or how long it would be. But the only thing I know that I capture so many of the truth of that experience. And people need to see this. When you were going through the the footage, how did you decide what footage to choose? And how did you decide that it should be about the lives of ordinary people in the revolution? For me, they weren't ordinary people. For me, they were just like kind of heroes and people who I've got so much so much strength from from them. But I know at the same time that all of these people are normal people. We are not heroes. We are not victims. We are just normal people and we want a better life for us. And we worked on this for two years, me and Edward Watts, our co-director. And uh, we were just trying to find the stories that make people maybe interested in, try to reflect the normal experience of any person all over the world 
in our experience in Aleppo. And the film was very personal. And for me, like, it wasn't easy at all to take this decision that I want to involve my own life in this. But at the same time, I know that when the Syrian revolution started, I decided to give up everything in my life. And I wanted to sacrifice myself and everyone I know did the same. And for that reason, I felt that if the film also needs this, that's what I should do. When you started to put the film together, did you have any thought in your mind that it would be quite as successful as it has become? No, at all. We've been told a lot that no one will come. And I came to believe this because our own experience in Aleppo was like the displacement and that happened because no one really around the world cared about what we want as Syrian people. And they just wanted to like uh, let us out and give Aleppo and the place where we were living to the regime. So when when like when I started working on the film, I thought like, yeah, maybe these people are right. No one is caring about us. No one is uh, wanted to, to know about Syria. People are just tired and bored and they want just like, you know, to watch funny stuff and entertainment stuff. But then when we start releasing the film out, I started to see how people are really care about Syria. So the success of your film has shown that people do care. Yeah, I give us like so much hope and not just like for me, for Hamza and the people in the film, but also for the for the all the Syrian people who we know. We saw how many people like just wanted to do something, but maybe like the misinformation that the regime and the Russian were doing all of these things make people like make it very difficult for them to understand and to do something. And Action for Summer, for example, our impact campaign shows how many people just want to help and want to tell the Syrian people that they are not forgotten. I think it is important for people to understand the nature of the conflict. You have won numerous awards for it, but what do you want the film to do now? The film for me is just one step in our journey towards justice and toward free country. And uh, I want the film now to be an evidence about what happened in Syria and an evidence for all the crimes that the regime committed against humanity and against us and against their own people. I wish to work with you, Toby, and you know this now. And... I really need to find some justice through this process. You say you want to find justice. What does that mean? We want to the Syrian regime and the Russian regime to admit all the crimes that they've done. I wanted everyone who committed a crime in Syria to be held uh, to account. And simply, like, we want all the detainees to be out. We want uh, us to be back as displaced people. We want to build our country in our own hands and not being like living in another country. This is not what we wanted in 2011. Do you see a time when you would like to return to Syria? Of course, we, we, we aim to for, for this moment. Going back home, start with some sort of, of change in Syria and some sort of accountability for all the war crimes that happened. One of the things that we're seeing now, which we haven't seen before, 
is that there are at least trials taking place in Europe where some officials are being held accountable. And we're also seeing trials of members of Daesh Islamic State um, being held accountable in European courts as well. How important is that? It's very important because what we lost in our life now as Syrians is the hope. And this trial is bringing so much hope to us that justice will happen one day. We can't build a country altogether if justice didn't happen. And that's our worry with all these like attacks of hospitals, of schools to torture people to death and all of this things and the regime is still controlling Syria. And I just feel that this trial is the only way to start a conversation about a free country. And what do you think the international community has failed to do over the last few years? And what do you think it should be doing now? We don't have this much hope in the international community. I think like we've been let down by the UN agencies. A lot of people really don't know the truth and don't know the real situation. And what we still might hope from the government is hopefully some sort of accountability in the future. It's it's very complicated with the like US, the Russian interest in Syria and all like the political situation. And it's very sad when they turned a humanitarian disaster to, to a political situation. And we just hope not only accountability for al-Assad regime, but also to bring accountability to all the SDF, to ISIS, to the extremists in Syria. And I really feel that will happen. There's very little talk about justice as part of the peace process. If there is a transition of power at some stage, but there is no justice, those that have committed crimes are not held accountable. Do you see that as a dangerous step for for the future? Yeah, like, of course, yes. There will never be peace if there's no releasing for all the detainees in Syria. There's no peace if there's not, like, everyone who committed a crime accountable. You know, there's over, I mean, 6 million refugees who are all over the world, and maybe the same amount exactly in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, in the camps just around Syria. If these people didn't come back to Syria, which country we are talking about? You know, like what Syria will mean without all of these people, without all the detainees who are disappeared in Syria, and without everyone feeling satisfied that we are in a point where we can really come over everything we went through and we can open like a new page in our life. One of the concerns that has been raised, largely amongst the international community, is that one of the reasons why they haven't sought to overthrow the regime is that they're worried about a political vacuum, that there is no effective uh, opposition leadership that could take control. And so if Assad was removed, if his regime was removed, that extremists could take over. Do you think that's a realistic concern? Of course not, because how we can have oppositions how we can have leaders where the regime was controlling Syria for the last 50 years, making sure that no one could think out of what they should tell them. 
I think if we had the space and the time and just to leave us alone, really as Syrian people, we will have thousands of leaders. And actually what happened in east part of Aleppo was a very good example of this. In one point, after like a couple of months when the regime uh, dropped out all his like army from east part of Aleppo, and you can't imagine the life at that point. We, we weren't having like a free country, of course, but we have so much developed and amazing skills from people who they've never like done this uh, achievements before. But because we had just like a free town where we were able to present ourselves and do everything we, we wanted to do for our city, there was like a local council to Aleppo. There was like an amazing educational system. There was an amazing team of uh, civil defense and amazing health uh, system. This is all happened with uh, by activists who they've never been able like to take control in any area. But just because we had that space, we were able to prove to ourselves and to the world that yes, we are able to find an alternative, not just one for the regime, but we will have like thousands of alternatives. We see that the, the country has been destroyed and it's going to have to be rebuilt and that's going to take a very long time. Yeah, but it, it all can happen when, 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 people, when people are free, you know, when, when people are not afraid of being killed by a Russian aircraft or their own army. It all can happen when, when you know that you won't be detained and killed under torture because you 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 said something that the the government didn't like so when you at least secure the the basics of human needs then anything else can be built and planned how important do you think it is that there is a level of international justice for the conflict in syria and by that i mean a process initiated at the international criminal court it's very important because this is, for now, the only way to seek for some justice. Um, I was in Germany last week and I attended one of the sessions uh, about Anwar Islam and the Anul Gharib trial. And I can, like, to be very, very honest, I was very happy and very, like, proud of the people who uh, did this trial. But at the same time, there was something like I couldn't not be sad thinking that I wish if that trial was in Syria. But I know that this is not possible now. And this is the only way for us to know what justice means, to understand how we can like really put our thinking and work and everything we can do toward this step. It doesn't matter how long time will be until we will find the results. Do you think that trials one day taking place in Syria, one, is a realistic possibility, and two, is important? Everything we are doing as Syrians now is toward that day when we will be back to Syria and we will find our justice there. We are just trying to find that hope and capture that hope in any like way. Maybe in the future, maybe there's some not something we can see in the near future, but I'm sure this is something we will find one day. For those listening, Guernica has developed a partnership with uh, Wad and Hamza and the Action for Summer 
in order to to ensure that, at the very least, uh, Russia is held accountable for what is effectively war crimes uh, for the bombing of hospitals. Um, And that is something that we are very, very committed to. And we think that that is one of the most important voices of the film. And so we are very proud to be able to to assist in that process. We are also speaking to Catherine Machi-Uel, the head of the United Nations International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, to assist in the investigation and prosecution of persons responsible for the most serious crimes under international law committed in the Syrian Arab Republic since March 2011, more commonly referred to as the Mechanism or the IIIM, the mechanism that was created by a United Nations General Assembly resolution on the 21st of December 2016. So, Catherine, thank you for joining us today for what is now the third episode of our podcast on accountability. I'd like to start by asking you to describe what prompted the creation of the IIIM, the mechanism for Syria, and just to tell our listeners what that mechanism is. Certainly events in 2016 did. That year, the the conflict in Syria was five years in, violence was escalating, and the death toll, especially amongst children, was reaching record levels. Efforts to stop the atrocities and attempts to hold perpetrators accountable uh, by by referring the, the situation to the International Criminal Court had been repeatedly blocked in the Security Council. So early December of that year, Canada successfully tabled a a resolution calling for the immediate uh, end of hostilities in Syria, which the General Assembly uh, adopted. Days following that, the situation in in a number of areas, and Aleppo in particular, actually got worse. And it was clear that the resolution had no effect. Lack of accountability alongside the total disregard for the fundamentals of international humanitarian law and international human rights law by the warring party, this is what spurred the General Assembly to take further action. So that same month, late in December 2016, the General Assembly established uh, the mechanism, giving it a mandate to assist in the investigation and prosecutions um, of persons responsible for the most serious crimes under international law that had been allegedly committed in Syria since March 2011. And really, um, the, the Triple creation embodies the will of the General Assembly to take a stand on behalf of Syria's victims and, importantly, to send a strong signal that there can be no sustainable peace without justice and that impunity for the crimes committed in Syria is only temporary. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how it was set up and what the mechanism looks like today. It's the first independent entity of its kind. It was born out of the absence of a, of a comprehensive uh, jurisdictional path forward. It's not a court or a tribunal. It can't adjudicate crimes. It's been described as having a, a quasi-prosecutorial function. And we are a team of uh, highly qualified investigators, evidence management officers, analysts, and lawyers. And we apply criminal justice methodologies in in our work. And even if we can't ultimately issue indictments or prosecute, 
we are supporting criminal investigation and prosecution. This is our primary role. We have a very ambitious mandate, in fact, which affords many opportunities to, to re-examine and even to reconfigure approaches to international justice. The Syrian situation is said to be the most documented conflict in the world. And therefore, what we're trying to achieve is to, to consolidate the many collections that exist. We, we also work to create frameworks and methodologies to make sure that we can maximize the value of the data that has been collected. And we also um, adopt a, a structural investigation approach. We seek to cover a number of issues, including the identification of crime patterns, um, the contextual element uh, of those crimes. We act as justice facilitators and, and, and we really uh, try to coordinate with the national jurisdiction, the civil society and the other international actors, and we, and we have a real opportunity of playing a, a significant role. The Syrian civil society and victims community, um, whilst it's been very critical of the UN in many respects, it's been very positive towards your mechanism. Why do you think that is? And how would you describe your relationship with Syrian civil society? I think it's certainly a result of an intended effort to engage with the civil society. It was also based on my um, my knowledge of past accountability process and, and my work in other institutions uh, working on accountability. I knew how important it was to, to from the outset, try to build that trust uh, and build that engagement as a two-way engagement. We have very early on, and with support from um, from uh, the Dutch government and from uh, the Swiss government, we have been able to uh, establish what we often refer to as the Lausanne platform, although we don't always meet in Lausanne. It's a twice-a-year event in which we, we associate um, our civil society uh, partners, um, and we originally use a platform to really to know each other, to uh, be able to hear from, from them what their expectations were, also to manage those expectations and let them understand what was the potential of this mechanism. But very uh, quickly, it turned into um, a platform where we could really have more substantive discussions. And on each occasion, we brought around the table uh, different uh, NGOs that really helped us starting to, to develop what we now call our victim-centered approach, making sure that we place the Syrian people at the center of our work and that they see this mechanism as a, as a vehicle to, to accessing justice. So I think building the trust has been really necessary so that they understand that we have this capacity to centralize but also to maximize the work they've done and to give them access to more jurisdiction. Do you see your mandate as solely a providing support to national jurisdiction? Um, and how do you seek to achieve that through the IIIM? It's clearly not just about impartially supporting national jurisdiction. Our mandate uh, also envisages extending such, such support to, as it says, regional or international courts that have or may in the future have jurisdiction over core international crimes committed in Syria. 
in just uh, over two years since we've been uh, operational, uh, it has grown, uh, become a substantial resource of now over 2 million records. And to date, it has really enabled us to support jurisdictions from 11 states. We have received uh, 63 requests for assistance from these jurisdictions. And uh, in addition to responding to their requests, we're also proactively offering support uh, to some of them. Why can we not have an international court? As you well know, there is an international criminal court uh, established pursuant to the Rome Statute. And, and Syria signed the treaty, but it did not ratify it. And you've, you've uh, pointed again to the, the political blockages, the use of veto by Russia and China, which date have prevented a referral of the Syria situation to the International Criminal Court by the Security Council. The, the why is mostly political. Um, what I can say about that is that as far as we are concerned, we are committed to support any form of justice that is compatible with our mandate. How do you envision justice being achieved and what would be your measure of having achieved justice as head of the mechanism? How do I measure? I think I listen to survivors first and foremost. I, I can see that their aspirations to, to justice is varied. In fact, some even say that justice is not possible. Many consider that uh, holding those responsible accountable including by way of criminal justice, is, is a crucial way of achieving justice. But they also make it clear that it's not the only, it's only one part of, of the equation. So I hear that uh, knowing the truth about the events, the fate of the missing loved ones, seeing the harm done to them recognized, that would contribute to bringing them justice. I mean, we know that the suffering is often irreparable, but there are forms of reparation that can help healing, so, um, that can that must be taken into, into consideration. But even if I was to limit my answer to achieving justice in court of law, for me it's clear that um, in a situation like the situation in Syria, not every survivor will have the opportunity to access uh, a form of justice in a court of law. I mean widespread atrocities attracted and structurally very complex situation makes it clear. So maybe when it comes to measurements, um, maybe it's about ensuring that every single opportunity for justice, I know I've said that already, but I want to repeat it, it's important, that every opportunity that becomes available is seized and supported. That's a way of achieving justice. I would add that um, while comprehensive justice may be difficult to attain, we must aim for maximum forms of justice within those forms of justice that become available. Try to do it as, as, uh, as well as we can, as, as broadly as we can. And another measurement when it comes to criminal justice uh, is, in my view, that the crimes that are being charged be sufficiently representative of the crimes and the harm suffered by the other communities, other victims, those who won't go have their case in court, could identify themselves in, in the cases that are moving forward. And certainly, uh, uh, those prosecuted include uh, those who are orchestrate 
other made possible the crimes, not just those who commit, I think, but part of the, the achievement of the, of the disease. How important do you think what you're doing is to combat what we're seeing, the misinformation and propaganda campaigns coming out of the Syrian conflict? Well, it's critically important, I think. And, you know, the, the, having the reality of what happened being, being uh, documented and being established one way or another, that's critical. That's what, uh, that's what will uh, prevent... Uh, I mean, it won't prevent disinformation, but it will counter disinformation. And that's really extremely important. If we project ourselves down the road at a time in the, we hope not too distant future, um, Syria can can move to, to rebuild itself and to, uh, to, to build a different society. Well, if you want to, to think of reconciliation after those tragic events, you need to have this uh, record uh, straight. If you, you can start a new society on uh, and, and, and hope for reconciliation based on a distorted uh, record of, of events. Having the years of experience that you have in both a national uh, criminal justice and an international criminal justice environment, why did you decide to take on the task of heading this mechanism? I had uh, left the international criminal field, and I think it's a combination of events. It was really an opportunity that this mechanism was uh, opening. But at the same time, I've spent enough time in international courts to know that you know it's not panacea. It's a it's a long process to to make these trials uh, a reality. And thinking that in the situation in Syria, there would be an opportunity to, even if the, an international court of tribunal is not, not yet available, thinking that you could start this work, that you could, uh, you could go beyond the documentation, the reporting, there are so many instances, including within the UN, the Commission of Inquiry, uh, I've made many reports about what happened in Syria, but I know for a fact that it takes another long, long time to, to go from this reporting, which is critical, to uh, building uh, cases. Well, I felt that, yeah, I wanted to be part of that. What I would like to ask both of you it's something that we ask all of our guests in this podcast series on a more global scale, not necessarily restricted to Syria. What does accountability mean to you and what could we do better? That's really like hard to ask to answer, I think, because it's something we've never met before. And in what's happening now and all of this trial and cases, we hope to know what justice and accountability mean. And I can answer, like, what can we do more? Just a partnership like this one between you and us, between the help of your amazing team and you yourself. I think we need to bring all the elements and all the, like, pieces of that big puzzle together to find a way of, like, be useful from the media experience or the film, like, success or even, like, the 
the evidence that we could capture from like filming and your amazing experience as a lawyer and and try to bring this two together to find the best way of shedding the light and bringing accountability for the people who really suffered before. We can and we should do better by, yeah, by adding more judicial avenues. If we don't, I think we will offend the Syrian people. What, after everything that you've been through, what would you like to say? What is your message to those listening today? Uh, I hope like everyone who's listening to us, uh, first, if you hasn't seen the film yet, like please watch it because like whatever I've told you now, whatever you heard about Syria, the film is just like totally different, unique experience of understanding what was happening. But my main message is watching this, being angry or being sad, like this will not change anything. But in any way you can do something to Syria and to the people or even to any place around the world you feel that they need your help, please do it. We are all in this world trying to just bring better life for us, for our children. If you are able like to be in solidarity with the people, if you are a lawyer and you can like help with anything to bring more accountability to these people, if you are a filmmaker or journalist and you are able like to shed the light more on what was what's happening in in these countries we have so much responsibilities in this world and we just need to be all together in this wonderful thank you very much for your time that was the third episode of the guernica accountability podcast is aleppo the new guernica and that was wad and hamza al-khatib and Catherine Mashi-Uel, speaking about the importance of documenting crimes in Syria and giving victims a voice to seek and obtain justice. The Guernica Accountability Podcast is about accountability in different parts of the world and what it means to each of us. From the courage and passion of Wad and her husband Hamza, and the commitment and persistence shown by Catherine and her team, it shows what can be done, and more importantly, what should be done. This is a subject that we at Guernica are very passionate about. We hope that you can walk away from this with a better understanding of the importance of the work being done in Syria. It's only through experiences like this that we can all learn to do things better. Syria is a subject that we at Guernica are very passionate about. We hope that you can walk away from this with a better understanding of the importance of the work being done and the nature of the conflict. It's only through experiences like this that we can all learn to do things better. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, please do follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you have. You can find our website at www.guernica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can follow us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37. We are also on Instagram and LinkedIn. We hope to bring you interesting accounts from all around the world. Next week, we travel from Syria to El Salvador. Thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.